Thank you for taking time to listen to this Redemption Church sermon. Redemption Church exists to make authentic disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of our world. We want to help everyday people wake up to a deep, meaningful life in Christ. We pray this sermon will help. For more information about Redemption Church and for additional resources, please visit redemptionokc.com. Heavenly Father, thank you for laughter. Thank you that we can laugh at ourselves. Thank you that the world does not rest upon our shoulders, uh, but that we have a creator God who sustains all things and holds all things together and that everything points to you, Lord. Father, I pray that as we enjoy the spring weather, as we see uh, leaves on trees, as we see flowers that sprout up, as we see grass and a little bit of weeds mixed in sometimes uh, rising up out of the soil, Father, that we would remember that you make all things new, that you are the God of the resurrection, and that death sometimes comes, but life springs from it. Father, we do trust, as our students talked about this weekend, that beauty would come from ashes and that you would continue to do the work of restoring each of us as you restore this world one day. And Father, as we get to taste a, a little bit of that now, Father, would you help us to enjoy that goodness as a part of the resurrection community of Jesus and long for the day when he comes back to set all things right. Father, we pray it in his name. Amen. Uh, Well, as we've talked about this series, we're starting a new series today on the Sermon on the Mount. And as we've kind of talked about this, we just said that this is a year in which anyone I know looks back at the last kind of 13, 14 months and just longs for a better world and we desire a better, a better day. And sadly, the, the, the last place people tend to look for help in the middle of days like that is the church. Uh, but really, this is not something new. It really, it seems like every new generation comes in and they're just as disillusioned as the one before it. In the 60s, the world was really, uh, really angry about inequality. In the 70s, they were angry about the war. In the 80s, we were angry about being latchkey kids who came home and had to fix ourselves microwave dinners. In the 90s, we were angry because uh, we had to wear flannel on Doc Martens all the time. Uh, yeah, there's probably some other stuff in there too. And some of you were like, man, I bring, bring my docs back. I'm okay with it. But uh, in the 2000s, we were upset because uh, of religious extremism in our world after 9-11. In 2010 and beyond, we were angry all the time because we had smartphones. In 2020, man, we didn't even need a reason to be angry. Just everything was, everything was upset. And so we were frustrated with that. I know this is oversimplified, but you get the point, right? See, we desire a better world. We dream of a better world. We long for a better day. And sometimes those right desires, uh, are, those desires are right. We desire love. We desire acceptance. We desire justice. We desire goodness and righteousness. But the place we run to to have those desires met is oftentimes the wrong place. Now, friends, the reality is the place we ought to run is the church. The place we ought to run is the word of God and the people of the book in the community of Jesus and uh, the people of Jesus. But so often we've made Jesus unattractive to the world and the way that we lived. In fact, that's the thing that's grieved me the most over the last 12 months is that Jesus' church does not look like Jesus. And so when the people of our world look at us and when they look at Jesus' church, they can't find him because they don't see him in our lives. 
In fact, Jesus said something similar to this. In Revelation 3, talks about the Jesus, or Jesus talks about one of the churches in the first century. He says, you have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. You have, a, you have a proclamation, you have an outward appearance that says one thing, but the experience that people have with you is something different. And that's the, the call that Jesus is going to, to, uh, to address in the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, he says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and then hide it under a basket. But they put it up on a stand and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, you let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. See, friends, as the people of God, we're called to be a city on a hill that shines brightly of the, the works of Christ in us and points them to the heavenly Father that they want to give glory to. So Jesus calls to be different. In fact, as we get into the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, as we walk through this over the next few months, what we're going to see is that every single paragraph of the Sermon on the Mount cries out for God's people to be different than the world and than those around us. And so in this, I know of no other text that is going to push us more directly or, or more, uh, almost more violently against some of the presuppositions that we have in our day about what the church really looks like. In fact, people have looked to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount for 2,000 years for guidance and understanding what it is uh, to, to live for Him. And it's continued us to set souls on fire for Christ as it's pointed us to Him. Friends, what we're going to see is that Jesus' life, death, and resurrection call out a community who are supposed to be different from those around us. He invites us into a resurrection community where we experience deep, uh, heart-engaging, life-changing, um, eternal-seeking discipleship and following of Him. Now, last week, uh, as we were talking about Easter, one of the things I said is that a lot of us, one of the problems we all have, that, that a lot of us have is we have kind of a truncated view of what Jesus came to do. And I said it this way, that maybe you, you grew up in church and you heard this thing that said, Jesus accepts you as you are. And if you just say a prayer or walk an aisle or check a box or repeat the words of someone, what someone else said to you, that Jesus will save you. And that one day when you die, you'll get to go to heaven and be with him forever. And then that's about all you know. And so what you think the Christian life is about is, I get to say the right thing here, and then, and so I have an entry point, then I have an exit strategy to go to heaven when I die, but what happens in the middle doesn't really matter. And so you have a truncated view of the spiritual life now, but you typically then have a truncated view of God's hope for you in the future, that he's going to come back and bring a new heavens and a new earth, and he's going to reign victorious over all things, and we get to reign with him in the new heavens and the new earth as part of his kingdom. And so we don't fully understand all it is that God wants to do in our lives. And the reality is if that's you and if that's your experience and if you grew up in the Bible Belt and have one of those kinds of stories, but you don't really understand how it connects to today, can I just tell you, you have a truncated understanding and you're missing out on the beauty and the blessings of the resurrection community and what he wants to do for you right now and what he wants to do with, for you in the future. So today I want us to begin to explore this, this whole idea. And so turn with me to Matthew chapter 4. The Sermon on the Mount actually starts in Matthew 5, but we're going to go back because I want you to understand the context. It's important to understand kind of where Jesus is coming from before he gets to the sermon for us to fully understand the impact of it. Now, Matthew is the, 
the first of the four Gospels, and it's always held a special place in the history of the church because it was the first book that, that, that was in the New Testament that showed up. And this is Jesus' first sermon that shows up in that text. And so uh, this is likely the most famous text in Matthew. And these are the most famous or well-known words of Jesus throughout human history. Now, when Jesus became a man, it meant that God was breaking into human history in a new way. And so at the beginning of Matthew, if you go to Matthew chapter one, there's this long genealogy and it tells you kind of the, the earthly ancestors of Jesus. And it tells you that for a reason, because it says Abraham pointed to this and David pointed to this and Jesus is now here and he's here to fulfill everything that Abraham and David were promised. And so he's going to become a fulfillment of that. And then you keep going through this book and you get Jesus' birth and find out he's born through, through a woman. Mary, and it's a virgin birth, and it marks a sacred moment of the world. It's attested by a miracle, and in that, uh, there, there's a heavenly light that shows up. There's magi that travel. There's angels that proclaim things. This is a divine, sacred moment that says there's something unique about this infant that's been born into the world that's something new and different. God preserved um, Jesus as uh, a genocidal king came and wiped out all the young males uh, trying to eliminate any kind of rivals to his throne. And in that, Jesus, Mary, and Joseph had to go off to Egypt and, and then they were able to come back. And so his life was preserved through that. That was actually a symbol that Jesus was also a fulfillment of Moses. That just as Moses had been threatened as a child and as he had been in Egypt, as he had led his people home, Jesus was in a sense fulfilling what it is that Moses had begun. So Jesus was a fulfillment of Abraham, of David, of Moses. And then you get another fulfillment, a fulfillment of a predecessor, a precursor that would come to Jesus named John the Baptist. And so John the Baptist in, John, in Matthew chapter three prepares the way for Jesus. And you notice that in this, uh, he continues to proclaim this message. He says what? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's announcing good news. We should turn, we should turn away from our ways and turn to the Lord's ways because God's breaking into the world, right? Right here, there's closeness, there's nearness. The, the kingdom of God is at hand. He's breaking in to human history in a unique way. And John the Baptist's message was, he who's coming after me is stronger than I am. He's one whose sandals I'm not even worthy to carry. So John the Baptist says, as much as I want you to listen to my message, the dude who comes after me, he's the one. He's the one all of this is pointing to. And so everything pointed to Jesus and the kingdom he would bring. Now, the very first thing we see of Jesus' kingdom in the Gospel of Matthew is his temptation. That before he begins to lead, uh, he goes off into the wilderness, he goes off into the desert for 40 days, and he, he fasts, and he, uh, he, he does without the things that would comfort his body and make things easy. And in that, Satan comes, and Satan begins to tempt him, and there's three different temptations. Uh, he says to Jesus, if you're the son of God, turn these stones into bread. If you're the son of God, then throw yourself down and prove God will save you. Find your own security. Find your own safety. Choose my way over your heavenly Father's way, and I will give you power and freedom to do whatever you want. And all three times, Jesus refuses to listen to the temptation, and he chooses each time the more costly way. Each time Jesus, in the face of temptation, chose the more difficult way. And in the desert, Jesus was showing us something important, that the, the way of the kingdom is worth fighting for. The way of the kingdom is not always the easy way. And Jesus, at the very beginning of his ministry, has this temptation to take the easy way out and try to create a better way on his own, going around the way of God. And that temptation, friends, is one we're going to have to face as well. 
It's interesting, Malcolm Muggeridge, a British figure, said this about Jesus. He says, would it not have been easier for him to simply turn those, those stones into bread as he later returned water into wine at the wedding feast? And after all, why not? Roman authorities distributed free bread in order to promote Caesar's kingdom. Jesus could have done the same thing to promote his kingdom. And he could have done it by creating his own bread. But Jesus had but to give the nod of agreement, and he could have constructed Christendom not on four shaky gospels in the Bible, and not on a defeated man nailed to a cross, but on the basis of sound socioeconomic planning and principles. Um, every utopia, and an even bigger one in Red Square in Moscow. Instead, Jesus turned the offer down on the ground that only God could be worshipped. See, Jesus could have taken the easier way to try to build his kingdom, right? But he continued to choose the costly way, the harder way. And in that, Jesus, uh, the temptation, he says, repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. You notice that? He also tells us the reason why we want to change. Repent, because there's something better. There's a better way. There's a, there's a kingdom way. There's a Jesus way that's going to be a better way than anything you could devise on your own. Following, following God's way, friends, always demands we change, but it's always for our good. It's always offering us something better. And I, we're, gonna to, we're gonna talk today about discipleship and followership, and it becomes kind of out of this idea. In verse 18, it says, while walking by the Sea of Galilee, Jesus saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat of Zebedee with their father, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately, they left their boat and their father, and they followed him. Now, friends, something big is happening here. Ladies, let me ask you a question. With the men in your life, how many times do you have to say something before you get them to follow what you said? Right, can, can you relate? Uh, some of you are laughing a little too easy. Are their elbows being thrown here? Like, are we starting to get after something? It's, it's kind of, you start off with a gentle suggestion. Like, boys, could you get your laundry in the basket for me? And then you wait a little bit, and then you've got to escalate and turn that suggestion into a little more encouragement. Like, son, before you do anything else, I need your laundry in the basket. And then you wait a little longer and it's, nothing's happened still. Like they're still going about whatever they were. So now uh, you step it up a notch and you just go, boys, stop whatever you're doing right now and go put your laundry in the basket. And you're starting to remember language that you thought you'd forgotten in high school. And you're, you're, you're about to go full drill sergeant uh, level on your kids to try to get them to do something. That's when you know God's doing something amazing here, right? Jesus says, follow me. And what's it say? Immediately, they left their nets and got up and went and followed him. Verse 20, verse 22, says it's two more guys. Immediately, they got up and left the boat and followed him. God was up to something. Uh, these guys were listening, but they were following. And friends, that, when we talk about this word discipleship that we sometimes throw, away, throw around in the life of a church, that's really what we're talking about. Is this transition or transformation that happens in us where we stop going our way, we turn, and we say, I'm gonna follow a better way of Jesus. And that's what discipleship means, is learning to be a follower, a learner, um, someone who's growing as a follower of Jesus. Now, look at the next verse, verse 23. <coughs> it says, and Jesus went 
throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel or good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all of Syria and they brought him the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Do you see what's happening here? Jesus is proclaiming what? Good news. He's proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom to the people that are there. But he's not just proclaiming. He's actually demonstrating. He's declaring it and he's demonstrating uh, what the kingdom looks like. And so he's telling them that there's good news that the kingdom has come. And he's saying, and let me show you what the, kingdom, what the kingdom of heaven that's breaking the world will look like. And so he heals all those that are hurting. It says he healed all those who had afflictions, all those who were suffering, all those who were struggling. Because he's trying to give us a glimpse of what his future kingdom is going to be like. The place where there is no more sin, no more sorrow, no more suffering. But where all things are restored, he's saying, let me give you a taste of what that day will be like. So he's declaring the good news that the kingdom is going to come. And then he's demonstrating for them so they can see what the kingdom is going to look like. And in this, his miracles attested to the kind of human flourishing that one day he will bring to us. Now, friends, this is an important section. This isn't all just set up because it's in this context that Jesus is going to preach the Sermon on the Mount. And it's understanding all the promises that have built up through the Old Testament from Abraham to David through Moses that are pointing to Jesus, the promises of a predecessor that would come before him and announce that his kingdom is coming, the temptations that Jesus faced, and yet he stood strong in the midst of, in the midst of choosing an easier way. He said, no, I'm going to refuse the easier way because I know that the way of the Lord is going to ultimately be the best way. And all of that, he begins his ministry, and the first thing he does is he proclaims and says, stop going your own way, but go the way of, Jesus, go the, way of the Lord, because it's a better way. And he tells them and invites, there's an invitation to them to trust the kingdom and what it is that he's going to do. And then Jesus steps up and begins to preach this sermon. So you have to understand the power of who Jesus is and what he came to do and the good news he was proclaiming to us before you get to this message. Because this message is not going to be easy for us all to receive. So now we get to Matthew chapter 5. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain where he sat down and his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them saying, and then he begins the sermon. So Jesus has done all these miraculous things, giving people a taste. And when, when they begin to see the kingdom, and they begin to taste it, and they begin to hear the good news preached to them, it, the mass has come to him. And so Jesus gets to get up on a higher ground. He goes up on the mountain, and he sits down, which is what a sage or philosopher that day would do. And he's saying, I've got truth I want to share with you. Come and listen to what I have to say. And so this is what Jesus is going to begin to do. And in the Sermon on the Mount, what we're going to see over the next couple months is Jesus is going to really unpack his vision for the world, his vision for goodness in the world, his vision for human flourishing in the world. In fact, the Beatitudes start off with, uh, there, there's a word that's there that means blessed, or sometimes we translate it as happy. Sometimes it might be translated as flourishing. But what he's saying is, if you want to know what the good life of the kingdom is like, Listen to the words that I'm telling you. And he's going to begin to describe that. Now, all that sounds really good, right? Many of you think like, man, I'm in, this all sounds great. Well, that's because we haven't got to the words of the sermon yet. Because we, we haven't got to the part that says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Because, I mean, who wants to be one of those that mourn, right? 
I mean, isn't the whole, the, the whole goal of the American life is the pursuit of happiness? Now, not necessarily wrong, not necessarily all bad, not necessarily what it means or, or totally contrary to this, but when we hear blessed are those who mourn, it makes us scratch our heads. What about this one? Because we haven't yet got to, if the right eye causes you to sin, tear it out. Uh, how many of you have followed that command? You're like, well, let's talk about that one. Uh, we haven't yet gotten to, if anyone slaps you on the cheek, give them the other also. We haven't gotten to love your enemies and pray for him who persecutes you. We haven't got to do not lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. The Sermon on the Mount covers some tough stuff, doesn't it? And so when you begin to think about the things that he's saying, you're like, yes, I want the kingdom. Yes, I want the place where all things are made new and there's no more sin and sorrow. And Jesus goes, this is the way. And you go, like, really, like, tear my eye out? Like, I'm not sure what to do with that. In fact, uh, Virginia Stem Owens, a professor at Texas A&M, I, I love this story. She uh, signed the Sermon on the Mount as a reading assignment for her students, thinking, well, this is the middle of the Bible Belt. I mean, we're right in the heart of Texas. It's, you know, strong university. We'll just throw this out. And surely most of these people have been kind of familiarized with it. And here's what the reactions uh, were to the Sermon on the Mount. In my opinion, religious is one big hoax. There's an old saying that you shouldn't believe everything you read, and it, it applies in this case. Well, one of her students said. Another student wrote about the Sermon on the Mount. The stuff churches preach is, absolutely st is extremely strict and allows for almost no fun without thinking it is a sin or not. Another one said, I did not like the essay, Sermon on the Mount. It was hard to read and made me feel like I had to be perfect, and no one is. Uh, still another student wrote, uh, the things in the sermon are absurd. To look at a woman as adultery, that is the most extreme, stupid, unhuman statement I've ever heard. Um, says a guy clearly struggling uh, with some lust in his life, right? Um, but you understand why they push back against that and you understand the tensions. Any of you ever have, ever had those thoughts or feel that way when you read what Jesus says? If you're honest, you're like, can I admit that here? Yes, you can. Um, we all struggle to understand everything that, is, that Jesus is saying. But here's what I, I love what Stem Owens says about this. She says, at this point, I actually began to be encouraged. There's something exquisitely innocent about not realizing you shouldn't call Jesus stupid. This was a real thing. The pristine response to the gospel unfiltered through two millennia of cultural haze. I found it, I found it strangely heartening that the Bible remains offensive to honest, ignorant ears just as it was in the first century. And do you catch the importance of what she's saying? This was hard for Jesus followers to hear. And this is hard for us to hear. And as tough as it sounds, Jesus doesn't back down. In fact, if you get to the end of the sermon, Jesus ends the sermon this way. He says, you get to choose one of two ways. And he says it this way. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who builds his house on a rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them, he will be like a foolish man who builds his house on the sand. One will stand, one will fall. You get to choose. Hear my words and do them. And that's where Jesus is going to end his sermon. It all depends on what we do with his words. Friends, do you think the Sermon on the Mount is something we ought to listen to? Do you think that as we get to Matthew 5, 6, 7, and we look at these three chapters and we look at the sermon that Jesus preached, if Jesus himself said, he who hears these words and builds their life upon him will stand, he who ignores them will fall, he's giving weight to the importance of these words and to what it is we're called to do. 
And no wonder at the end of chapter seven, it says this. And when Jesus finished the sermon, the crowds were astonished at his teaching for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. They're saying something's different about Jesus and this message that he's come to give. So let's talk a little more about the sermon before we dive in. We're gonna, we're gonna wait and dive into it next Sunday. But let me just give you some, some overview. Let me start with what it's not. The Sermon on the Mount is not a list of prerequisites for you to go to heaven and be saved. It's not a list that says, if you do all these things perfectly, then you'll earn your way to heaven. Uh, the, the rest of scripture clearly shows that's not the case. Uh, it's not just a collection of how to be good and get advice for moral life. It's not a model for kind of utopian society and uh, how to fix the social issues of the world. Uh, although I think it speaks to all these things. I think it does give us good advice for moral life. I think it does give us wisdom for how to, how to navigate our world. It's, not a, it's also not a call to embrace poverty and suffering as a monk who retreats himself and tries to, tries to shelter himself from ever making a mistake. It's not a call to embrace that kind of, a, that kind of an aesthetic lifestyle. Um, as you read through the Sermon on the Mount, it's also not kind of impossible ideals of a mountain mystic uh, smoking a, a, a pipe up in, up in a, a cave somewhere, spouting off pithy sayings that you're supposed to follow, like Gandalf in The Lord of the Rings. Like it's, it's not that kind of a thing. It's actually something much bigger than any of those things. In fact, um, here's what we're gonna see, that we may try to dodge what Jesus says or explain it away, but the reality is that when you come to the Sermon on the Mount, there's a mysteriousness and a paradox to all that it calls us to and the invitation that's there that's going to be hard to avoid if we want to experience the blessings and the benefits of the way of Jesus and all that he offers to us. And so, as we think about that, um, so what is it all about? It's a challenge and an invitation to be Jesus' people who walk in Jesus' community in the way of Jesus and his kingdom. It's an invitation to understand what human flourishing really looks like. And it's, it's Jesus' manifesto for what that ought to be and a people who longs for a vision of his kingdom to become a reality. Uh, John Stott said, it makes goodness attractive. It shames our shabby performance. It encourages dreams of a better world. I find my heart set on fire by its nobility. Friends, the, the biggest problem in the American church is our superficiality that wants to reap spiritual benefits without real faith. We want to enjoy all the goodness as a consumer without truly entrusting our lives to the one who declares the kingdom. And so Jesus in the sermon is going to break through kind of this, this surface level, skin deep spirituality. And what he calls us to is a wholehearted loyalty to God. That, and so, so he's going to say, you can't serve both God and mammon but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, meaning your whole heart, your, your inside and outside, your, uh, your, your entire being should be devoted to him and loyal to him. And that's what ultimately drives your life. In fact, as he, as he talks about this, he's going to really just talk about the great philosophical questions of life. Now, but in this, you have to understand the very beginning, if you look at the Sermon on the Mount, the middle of it, if you go through five, six, and seven, if you get to chapter six, the very center of it is going to be the Lord's Prayer. And so the, the heartbeat of the Sermon on the Mount is this trust in your heavenly Father. Uh, where you say, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Meaning, I trust my heavenly Father above any earthly thing. 
And so I ask for his goodness to come down to earth as it is in heaven. And I trust in him so enough that I can say, give us this day our daily bread. I trust my heavenly father enough that I can say, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. I trust my heavenly father enough to say, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is the prayer, it's in the center of the sermon. And he tells us that ultimately this is not, that our discipleship and our call to follow Jesus, our call to trust him in all of life, and our call to give this kind of wholehearted commitment to him is not contrary to the grace and the love of God. But ultimately it's grounded in the grace and love of God. That the fact that we trust our Heavenly Father so much and we trust his goodness towards us calls us to give our lives to him and to trust him in every area and arena of our life. So we don't have to hold back anything with kind of a divine hearts pulling in two different directions we can say here I am Lord just take all of me and we can trust him and that's the invitation so Jesus in this sermon is going to kind of deal with the great philosophical questions of life how do humans truly flourish what does true happiness look like what does the good life look like for humanity and in those questions, philosophers have debated those for, for a long time. I was reading uh, in preparation for this, and uh, it was interesting. Philip Yancey, one-time editor of Christianity Today, was talking about the old Soviet Union and the, the era of communism. And when he did, he said that uh, after communism fell, the editors of Pravda magazine, which was the official mouthpiece of, communist, of the communist regime all throughout the history of the Roman Empire, or the, the Russian Empire, um, they, they actually reached out to him and said, look, we're really struggling because after the fall their view their readership had gone from 11 million down to several hundred thousand and they said look we don't know we don't know how to do anything in this world where we can't just dictate to others and he said it seemed like they were truly asking for help and so um, he went over and began to talk with them here's what was fascinating to me he said the editors remarked wistfully that christianity and communism share many of the same ideals equality sharing justice racial harmony but they had to admit that the marxist pursuit of that vision produced the worst nightmares the world has ever seen. Why? Here's a quote. The editor-in-chief of the Pravda magazine said, we don't know how to motivate people to show compassion. We tried raising money for the children of Chernobyl, but the average Russian, average Russian citizen would rather spend his money on drink. How do you reform and motivate people? How do you get them to be good? Isn't that fascinating? See, the, the way that the world oftentimes tries to make people good is I'm going to leverage you. I'm going to manipulate you. I'm going to force you. I'm going to coerce you into doing what is right. I'm going to push you into that. Jesus takes a different approach. Um, it's interesting. When Jesus looked out at his people who were disobeying and looked out at how they were pushing back against the Lord's way and against the Lord's kingdom, um, it said that he cried out and said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I long like a, like a hen for her chicks to gather you together underneath my wing. See, when Jesus looked at a people who were rebellious, what he saw was people that were hurting, people that were making choices that were gonna lead them down a bad path, people that thought they were getting a better way but were being deceived and tricked into taking a false way. It was never gonna deliver on the promises it gave them. And he says, I wish I could gather you in and protect you because I want something better for you. And so that's the way I think we need to understand what we're looking at with the Sermon on the Mount. He's going to give us a vision of how humans actually flourish. And friends, here's what I know. There's so many messages you're gonna hear throughout your days and weeks to come that are gonna offer you a better way than Jesus' way. 
but there is no better way. This is the way of human flourishing. And Jesus is going to lay it out for us. And we'll talk more about that next week and then kind of unpack that a little more. Today, all I want us to think about today is the call to be wholehearted followers of Jesus. Friends, have you, have you settled that in your heart that just says, I want, to give my, I want to give my whole life to Jesus? I want to trust him. Not just so that I can sort of get a, a hall pass and get to go to heaven one day, but I want to actually give my life to Jesus because I believe his way is better and I believe that the only true life is going to come by surrendering to the kingdom and to the king of that kingdom. And it's a call to discipleship that Jesus offers us throughout all of um, this, this passage. It's interesting. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones and, and a lot of the commentators talk about in the history of interpretation of the Sermon on the Mount, there's just a lot of difference. Some people look at it and go, well, that's just for a kingdom day. We don't even apply now. Some have looked at it and said, well, it's just meant to give you ideals so you realize how short you fall so you can trust the Lord. Uh, others would say, no, it's a social way, a social roadmap for how to build a utopian society. Uh, others would say it's, uh, it's, it's, you're actually called to be perfect and obey it all. And, uh, and so you need to live under the pressure and the weight of that all the time. And in the middle of all that, there's, there's a little bit of truth in many of those things, but they're not really the right approach. That ultimately the approach to this says that because of Jesus and, his gra and the grace of his kingdom, we, our hearts ought to be changed so that we repent, turn from our way and turn to his ways, knowing that his way is better. And we want to live for him forever. And in that, um, we begin to grow and move in a new direction. But here's the difficulty for us. I think if you've grown up in American Christianity, um, grace and discipleship sometimes are pitted at odds with one another. Here's what I mean by that. Do you all know what grace is? Sometimes here explained as God's riches at Christ's expense, that the fact that you can't save yourself, the fact that Jesus accepts you just as you are, the fact that uh, because none of us can earn our way to heaven, none of us are gonna be as good as Jesus, none of us line up and do everything perfectly, none of us are going to obey all the Sermon on the Mount, in that we, Jesus had to die for us, and because of that, his grace comes to us, accepting us, and gives us new life, but also promises us forever life. And if we just turn to him and trust him, we'll have life eternal with him. That's grace, and that's, true. But sometimes we think that that grace is pitted against our actually learning to follow Jesus and trust him and walk with him. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones says it this way, is it not true to say of many of us that in actual practice our view of the doctrine of grace is such that we scarcely ever take the plain teaching of Jesus, of the Lord Jesus Christ seriously. We have so emphasized the teaching that all is of grace that we try not to imitate, or that we should not try to imitate his example in order to make ourselves Christians, that we are virtually in the position of ignoring his teaching altogether and saying that it has nothing to do with us because we are under grace. So kind of a, a tricky statement or a difficult statement for us to unpack. Here's what he's saying. Sometimes we've, we've said so much about God's grace and we've been so careful to protect God's grace so that everyone knows you can't earn your salvation that we've almost said, well, I don't want you to think that if I talk about obedience to Christ, you're gonna try to earn your salvation uh, through that obedience. And so we just ignore obedience altogether and all we talk about is God's love and his grace. But there's a reality that Jesus says to us, if you want to find your life, what? Lose it. If you want to follow me, come, take up your cross, deny yourself, and follow me. 
See, Jesus' message comes to us and it's grace and grace is good and we always want to hold on to grace and we never want to let go of grace and we want to exalt grace and we're a grace-based church and we're going to proclaim the good news of God's grace every day that we can possibly proclaim it when we gather together. But that grace is not at odds with obedience and discipleship and learning to follow Jesus. Grace actually enables obedience. Grace actually empowers obedience. Grace actually enlivens obedience. It's because of God's grace that we long to live in the Jesus way because we trust his love and his goodness for us and we trust that his way is better. And so if you look at Ephesians 2, it says it this way. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And that is a gift, and that is not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no man may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. It's grace that is connected to God to obedience and faithfulness. We're called to follow. And so as we get to this sermon, here's what I want to here's what I want us to realize. Jesus offers this paradoxical way of life that says, I want to proclaim to you good news and you can trust me. I'm going to offer you a better way. But that way is going to, in our experience, is going to feel costly a lot of times. That just as it felt costly for Jesus when he was being tempted and he had to choose the more difficult, what seemed like in the moment the more difficult way, he ultimately knew that that was actually a better way. Oftentimes we have to make the same decisions. Students, I'm sure as you guys talk this weekend, you realize that oftentimes the world is going to offer us what seems like an easier way. And we're going to have to choose what feels harder in the moment, but is actually going to be a better way in the long run. And that's what Jesus Christ offers us in the Sermon on the Mount. Let me end with this. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German leader and philosopher and theologian and um, in that he, uh, th- this week in 1945, actually on the 9th of April, uh, Bonhoeffer was martyred and was hung by the Nazi regime in Germany. And through that, um, it just struck me this week as I was studying for this, that he wrote a book on the Sermon on the Mount called The Cost of Discipleship. And what, uh, what Bonhoeffer says about the dangers of our world is he says that sometimes we've become so focused on, on cheap grace that we miss out on costly grace. And he says, cheap grace is the justification of the sinner in the word is degenerated into the justification of sin in the world. Meaning if you don't, if you, if you don't really understand grace, you're gonna cheapen it and actually justify, not you as a sinner through the shed blood of Jesus, but you're gonna justify your sin. And you're gonna say, I guess I get to do whatever I want because Jesus' grace is so big. But Bonhoeffer says costly grace is something different. The cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without following the living Christ. But Jesus says to any of us that would follow him, come deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. Because Jesus, ultimately his sacrifice for us was incredibly costly. That Jesus shed his actual blood for you. Jesus on the cross died and his body was broken for you. And because of that costly grace, we have new life, we have forever life, we have transformed life. Uh, But Bonhoeffer's famous quote in that book was, he says, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Come and die that you may truly live. That's the message of Christ. Come and die to your own way. Turn to Jesus' way so that you can find that which is truly life. And that's the invitation of the Sermon on the Mount.
Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, as we begin this study, as we begin to look at the words of your son Jesus, Father, we pray that your spirit would take the truth of your word and apply it to our hearts. Uh, Father, we love your grace and we are grateful for your grace. Father, I pray that you would, uh, that you would take the fogginess of our minds and dissipate it so that we might have crystal clear clarity about the grace of Jesus. Father, might you help us to see how that grace leads us to long for your kingdom, to love your kingdom, to love uh, King Jesus and to, to await his return, to long for his kingdom to break into this world that we might look like, uh, that we might look like, um, like him to the city that watches us. And Father, might you, through the study of Jesus' sermon, Father, would you make us a city set on a hill? that people look to and they don't see us, but they see Jesus. And they glorify you because of the good, the good works which you have done in us by your grace. Father, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for joining us for this redemption sermon. For more resources and information about Redemption Church, visit redemptionokc.com and follow us on social media.